Opinions expressed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions. Get social with the Unelectables. You can find us on Twitter at Unelectables. And on Facebook at Unelectables Pod. I am Joey Oberhoffner. And I'm Kirk Schmidt. And we are The, the Unelectables. Unelectables. So, Kirk, it's been a couple weeks since uh, since we've recorded. Has anything happened in politics? Have you been paying attention? Nothing at all. It's been the most boring several weeks. Um, so, you know, I've just been, you know, watching some TV, playing some video games, because what else is there to, yeah. to pay attention to? I mean, I've been watching some paint dry. Uh, I've been uh, uh, getting haircuts every couple of days, just because... You know what I found out? There are 5,793 flowers on the wall. Really? And it doesn't bother me at all. Well, uh, nor should it. I mean, flowers are a good thing. So, so uh, you know, I, I heard about this small company out of Quebec. I, I can't remember their name, but uh, they, they seem to be in the news a little bit. Oh, uh, I know. It's uh, Schwartz's Deli. They make the best smoked meat sandwich. That, mu- that must be what it was. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's see. Um, something about um, people no longer being banned to run um, in the Alberta elections. Um, uh, although, although I, I didn't hear about Mandel yet, so, so yeah, we'll have I, to see what happens. It, it sounds like maybe the court is a little late in getting the paperwork filed on that decision. One could say that, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I think we'll, we'll talk about the rest through the news and opinion. Absolutely. Well, I hope everybody packed a lunch. Strap yourselves in. It is going to be another exciting episode of The Unelectables. This is episode three. Kirk, three. That is at least three more than we thought we'd get to. So we're at Revenge of the Sith level now. Uh, Well, I would say yes, but Revenge of the Sith didn't really happen, is my understanding. There was that final battle. It was good. Yeah. Kind of like of our, our opinion pieces. Well, sort of. Although, I do need you to understand that I have the high ground. So you don't have to. This is Unelectable News. Calgary City Councilor Jeremy Farkas brought a motion to council last week, co-sponsored by Mayor Nahed Nenshi, to restore $1.3 million in funding for summer student hiring in city departments. What's next? Calgary City Council voted last week to have researchers at the University of Calgary prepare updated studies on water fluoridation. Tooth decay in Calgary children reportedly spiked in the years following a 2011 city decision to stop fluoridating the drinking water supply due to cost issues. What's next? Alberta Party candidates Ali Hamour, 
Diana Lee, Mo Rahal, Tim Meach, and Rachel Timmermans saw their eligibility to stand for election reinstated by the courts following an Elections Alberta-levied five-year ban due to issues with timely reporting of nomination financials. Alberta Party leader Stephen Mandel will have to wait until Monday to hear whether or not his own five-year ban will be overturned. What's next? New Democrat MLA Denise Woolard lost her nomination race in Edmonton Meadows, becoming the third sitting NDP member of the legislature to lose their nomination contest, following Calgary Glenmore's Anam Kazim and St. Albert's Trevor Horn. What's next? Former president and CEO of the Edmonton Eskimos, Len Rhodes, was appointed the United Conservative Party candidate for the constituency of Edmonton Meadows by party leader Jason Kenney. The appointment of Rhodes, who has no obvious ties to this particular part of Edmonton, was within the party rules but still widely criticized by party members and observers in light of the heated contest that had been going on for that nomination between three declared candidates for the past year. What's next? UCP contractor and political operative Cam Davies was fined a whopping $15,000 by the Office of the Election Commissioner for allegedly obstructing an investigation. The office is currently investigating allegations of irregular financial contributions to the Jeff Calloway UCP leadership campaign, of which Davies was co-chair. Davies denies the allegations of obstruction and is taking the issue to court. Also fined was Karen Brown, who was levied a $3,500 fine for donating funds to the Calloway campaign that were given or furnished by another person. The Calloway campaign has been alleged to have been a kamikaze campaign funded and organized for the express purpose of drawing support away from Jason Kenney's main rival in the 2017 leadership race, Brian Jean. Calloway withdrew from the race and endorsed Kenney, who defeated Jean by 17,300 votes in the October 2017 election. What's next? Former UCP MLA Prab Gill, who was removed from the United Conservative Caucus after a ballot box stuffing scandal, has alleged that thousands of illegitimate votes may have been cast for Kenney in the aforementioned leadership vote. In a letter sent to the RCMP, the now-independent MLA alleges he was told that the Kenny campaign has created thousands of email addresses which were attached to membership applications, enabling those who could access those email accounts, Kenny's campaign, to cast votes for Kenny without the named party member ever knowing a vote had been cast in their name. What's next? And now it's time for the SNC-Lavalin controversy in 60 seconds. On January 14th, the federal cabinet was shuffled. One of the moves was that Jody Wilson-Raybould was moved from Minister of Justice to Minister of Veterans Affairs. Four weeks later, she quit the cabinet entirely. As it turns out, one of the politically sensitive files she was handling as Minister of Justice was the prosecution of major Quebec construction company SNC-Lavalin for, among other offenses, bribery to obtain contracts in countries where such actions are common, but still a violation of Canadian law when done by Canadian companies. If SNC-Lavalin was found guilty of the charges they were facing, they would be ineligible to bid on government contracts for the better part of a decade, costing many jobs in Quebec. Other cabinet ministers, the prime minister, and staff in the prime minister's office were, according to her, pressuring Wilson-Raybould to cut a deal with SNC-Lavalin in the hope that it would save those jobs in Quebec and bolster the liberal government's popularity in the province. The people alleged to have been pressuring Wilson-Raybould all deny that anything illegal happened. Just stand there in your wrongness and be wrong and get used to it. So obviously there is the federal issue right now with SNC-Lavalin and that. Um, and I think we're going to get into that. But first question I'd like to ask you, would it be better for the Liberal Party to run this fall with Justin Trudeau as leader, given everything that has transpired thus far? Or 
for the Liberal Party to break the federal fixed election date law, dump Justin Trudeau, and have a new leader going into a 2020 election. I think that it's better for them to go into the election with Trudeau. And here's why. Justin Trudeau is possibly going to lose some voters over this scandal. Let's be clear on that. But he's not necessarily going to lose them to the conservatives or lose them to the New Democrats. He might just be in a situation where women who feel betrayed by what's gone on, where First Nations people who feel betrayed by what's gone on, where people who just value the rule of law feel betrayed by what's going on, but they don't necessarily feel like they have a home in another party. I mean, if you're a woman who thought that having a feminist prime minister was a great thing in 2015, you're not now suddenly going to turn around and go, well, Andrew Shear's my guy now. It's true. So so I guess, I guess from your perspective right now, I mean, un- unless Trudeau steps aside, it's, it's kind of keep going forward? Well, the liberals have done the same thing that the liberals tend to always do, which is they erred on the side of trying to keep Quebec happy, right? Which is never a bad play if you're trying to form government in Ottawa. Right, Just like it's never a bad play to attack Ottawa if you're trying to form government in Edmonton. Sure. Right? So, I mean, what this all boils down to, I mean, the, the political Machiavellian uh, tactics and everything aside, is you've got Justin Trudeau and some senior members of his cabinet and some senior members of his, of his prime minister's office allegedly saying to the justice minister, hey, you got to help us out here. Well, you got to find a way for these jobs not to get lost in Quebec. Now, whether or not you agree that that is an above-board okay thing to do, if you're a Quebec voter, if you're the spouse of somebody who works for SNC-Lavalin, you're going, well, God, yeah, he's looking out for me, so I'm okay with it. And we talk about this all the time when we talk about Alberta politics. Well, that tactic is a little shady. That seems a little like it's not okay. But people believe that that person is fighting for them. You know, I don't care who shows up to your rally. If you're fighting for pipelines, you're my kind of person. The people in Quebec, a lot of them who are connected to SNC-Lavalin, which is a huge employer in the province, are saying, you know what? Like, this is a little dirty. But you're trying to look out for us, so we're kind of okay with it. And Quebec's one of those battlegrounds. Alberta's not a battleground. No. This province wasn't going to elect more than two liberals no matter what happened. Probably not even that many. But in Quebec, if if the liberals lose Quebec, they lose the country. So it, it was talked about that, um, or at least implied, that... that nothing illegal may have actually occurred mm-hmm. ethically that's one question but nothing illegal may have occurred um so did andrew Shear kind of go too far with uh contacting the the rcmp directly to try to um encourage them to investigate well i think i think this is a case just like question period where it's more political theater than anything else right once you've gone to the rcmp 
and you've written them a letter and you can release that letter on your social media, you can say, look at us standing up for the rule of law. Because the conservatives paint themselves as the law and order party anyway. So it plays right into their narrative that this guy's crooked, he doesn't know what he's doing, he doesn't have control over his caucus, he's you know looking out for Quebec at the expense of everybody else, and, and we darn it are standing up for you. Which is, which is on brand for Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives. Did he go too far? I don't think he went too far. I just don't think that the, uh, at least based on what we've heard so far, I don't think that the RCMP is going to find any there, there. They're not gonna, they're not gonna find something necessarily that they can lay criminal charges. Now, ethical breaches? Yeah, probably. But not having good ethics is not necessarily a disqualifying factor in Ottawa. In fact, for some people, it's a bonus. Now, I guess the question I would have is, is there precedence or is this precedent setting in terms of a political leader asking for an investigative arm to investigate an opponent? That is an interesting precedent that's being sent here. And I think that we see it to some degree, bleeding from, from down south, right? I mean, we saw during the, the last presidential election when Donald Trump was, you know, leading everybody at his rallies in a sing-along chorus of lock her up, right? Um, now, that's not to say that this is something that's going to be the new normal here in Canada. This is a pretty extraordinary circumstance. I mean, we've had, oh, yeah. we've had scandals before. You know, but we've never had anything uh, that really sort of took somebody's political career and just stomped on the brake almost as immediately as this has done for, for Justin Trudeau. I mean, whether or not the honeymoon was over before, it's definitely over now. And a lot of people are looking and saying, I don't know if I necessarily trust this guy. Nothing's been proven but people are choosing sides, and the side they're choosing is not his. So I guess the question is, is this going to hurt the Liberals in Ontario, right? Because if they have Quebec, and let's say, let's say that this does something like, like bolster Quebec, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you can't win on just Quebec. But if, if you have Quebec and you have Ontario, you don't really need the rest of the country. So... so Ontario is going to be the biggest battleground outside of Quebec. Does this does this sink the Liberals? Well, I think I think the Liberals are in trouble in Ontario, but I don't think that it's as a direct result of this issue. Right? If you look back over the past few years in Ontario, they arguably have the most set up and and uh, stratified conservative uh, campaign machine outside of Alberta in the whole country. Right, so between the, the Ford family and everything else that has gone on in Ontario, the, straight from, from city councils up to the premier's office, uh, you've got conservatives who know how to campaign. And now they have their finger on the pulse of the electorate. They know how to get them out to the polls. This is not something that Justin Trudeau necessarily needed to worry about in the last election. Right? You had the conservatives who people had the opinion they were getting a little long in the tooth. It had been 10 years. People were looking for a change. 
people in Ontario were saying, well, this guy from Alberta's been around a little long, maybe it's time for something new. And of course there was that feel good, um, uh, you know, uh, reminiscing of, of the Trudeau name and the Trudeau legacy, which in central Canada still carries a lot of weight. But now Justin Trudeau is facing a very hostile provincial government in Ontario, a government that's taking him to court over the carbon tax and a very organized opposition. And so a lot of those swing constituencies that maybe went liberal in the last federal election, those were up for grabs even before this happened. And, um, you know, like I said before, I don't know that 100, 150, 200 people in every poll, in every riding in Ontario are going to switch from Justin Trudeau's liberals to Andrew Scheer's conservatives. But if they even just stay home, that could swing some of those seats. And you don't have to swing too many seats before you start to have a real problem. All right, Kirk. So the last time we were together in recording, we talked a little bit about uh, the breaking news at the time, which was that Stephen Mandel, along with some other Alberta Party candidates, had been disqualified from running for five years by the election commissioner for filing incorrect or late paperwork. Um, now, many of those, as we heard in the news, are back on the ballot now, but Mandel's not. How come? That's a good question. And and so some people I've seen are speculating that there might be more to this because because as an experienced candidate, he should have known. Um, you know, there's something to be said about him being 15 days late. This could, could very well be the courts kind of showing him what that does when you are late with with decisions. So it's possible that the court is making him wait just to drive home the fact that timelines and deadlines have real repercussions? Well, I, I don't actually know if judges could do that, but I, I mean, it, it does seem a little bit that way. Okay. So based on what we've seen with the other candidates who had similar, in some cases identical, reasons to Mandel's for this late filing, which in their defense the Alberta Party says wasn't late at all because of uh, lack of clarity in the legislation, um, they eventually got their bans overturned. Do we have any reason to believe that Mandel's won't be? It's hard to say. I mean, again, this, this is coming from non-lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. But but if, depending on what argument he used, um, it could severely impact you know how how the the, the decision is interpreted. Okay. So like all good things in life, we have to wait to the, for the lawyers to tell us how it's going to go. Pretty much. Excellent. Okay, so one of the news stories was about former conservative, now independent MLA Prab Gill and his allegations of voting irregularities in the UCP leadership contest back in 2017. Uh, he said that uh, basically the fix was in, that the Kenny team was uh, warehousing votes, that they were corralling people's pins and they were casting votes for people who didn't even know they were voting. Um, what's, what do you think comes from this? Well, I mean, first of all, Kenny, Kenny responded by effectively saying that other campaigns were doing this, uh, to which there, there was, was immediate response from, from at least Brian Jean's campaign saying that, no, they didn't. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of the process, I mean, it kind of is internal party rules, right? So it's it's really up to the party 
to to be investigating this internally, which you know, hard to say what what comes of that. Right. Um, so at the time that it happened, I remember because there were three people in that race. We'll recall there was Jason Kenny, there was Brian Jean, and there was Doug Schweitzer, who's now the UCP candidate in in Calgary, Elbow. Right. Um, and I remember when the voting started because it took place over three days. Um, Almost immediately, the Brian Jean and Doug Schweitzer campaigns both issued releases calling on the party to hold the vote, like to, to hold it up, to, to stop accepting votes, because they said there were so many reports of people who said, I never got a pin, and they, they, were, they were trying to figure out what the issue was. And the party, for its part, the leadership uh, committee, responded at the time that, well, nobody would be committing voter fraud because... You know, all three of these candidates want to lead our party. So what possible benefit would there be in committing voter fraud? Which is a pretty easy question to answer, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I mean, we could, we could get into to all sorts of argument about, about you know, the, the system that they used and, and why uh, allowing uh, a pin-type pin system can be problematic, you know, and, and effectively the allegation is... That they used VPNs to get around the IP lock, right? So the IP address being being the address of, of computers, um, you know, they they employed VPNs so that they would have different IP addresses so that they could vote many times from one station. I mean, that's it's it's the type of thing where um, effectively it made it easy to do this type of thing if this th- type of thing actually happened. Mm-hmm. So then the technology exists to beat this system. The question is, did the Kenny campaign utilize it? And the allegation from Prab Gill, who admittedly has some, some you know, skin in the game here. I mean, he was kicked out of the Conservative caucus while Jason Kenny was leader. So it could be a case of sour grapes, or could there be something more serious here? Well, I mean, Jason Kenny kind of admitted that this was going on when... When he, he, I mean, maybe not admitted, but but implied at least that uh, they they did, but it wasn't just them, right? Mm-hmm. So so I think I think it did happen. Now now the question is, to what degree, right? So so the argument could be that they show up at say a senior's residence, um, all of the computers there would have the one IP address because of the way that that networking works, so not everybody would be able to go and vote. So they would set up the VPN so that they can they can get around that. I mean, that's that's one way that you could do it and basically make it easy for a number of people at one location to vote. Right. Um, the other the other question that really the question is, um, was it a case of something like that or was it a case of uh, computers elsewhere that that went? And it would be impossible. Um, well, maybe not impossible, but it, but it would be very difficult to track down uh, where the originating computers were especially this this late in the game mm-hmm. uh whether it was at you know seniors home a or or campaign headquarters x now we probably agree i think that there is not a snowball's chance in hell that the united conservative party says you know what we don't like the baggage that this guy has now we're going to get rid of him right they're sticking with jason kenny right this is oh, this yeah. is this is his baby i mean the whole reason the United Conservative Party exists is because of Jason Kenney. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and the thing is, I, I think that the next argument becomes 
well, look at how big his margin was. Mm-hmm. Right? Which, let's face it, at the time, you and I had conversations even that night going, that margin seems really wide. Right. Right? Like, that, that something felt off yeah. about it. He and, beat Gene by, I think, 30 points. Yeah. So, so something did feel off. Now, now that doesn't mean that something was off. It just felt off, right? So, um, but in the end, that's kind of the next argument, right? Is is there was such a wide margin, even if there was some voting irregularity? I mean, it wouldn't have made a difference, right? That's that's now uh, going to be, or quite likely going to be right. the the uh, narrative. It's it's the Jim Prentice argument, right? Sure. I mean, Jim Prentice won a won a leadership contest where there were online votes. And again, there were calls of irregularity, but the win was so convincing that people eventually just said, you know what, it doesn't matter. If he got three or 400 votes from an overzealous campaign volunteer who took it upon themselves to do something, he still would have crushed everybody else. So I guess the ultimate question is, is this all inside baseball? Does the average voter give a crap about this? Or do they just want a campaign so they can compare the leaders to each other instead of you know, relitigating leadership contests that happened almost two years ago. I don't. I don't think most voters are going to care nor be paying attention even to this this type of thing. I think they're going to look at the parties. They're going to look at the policies. Um, people are going to believe one narrative versus another. You know, there's a recession. There's not a recession. You know, things like that. Um, they're not going to be paying attention to whether or not there were some irregularities inside inside the campaign. The the people who pay attention to that are people like us and probably people listening to this podcast. Right. So is there any chance that the elections commissioner gets involved in this to a degree where it becomes a problem for Jason Kenney? Do they have any power to actually cast doubt on whether or not Kenney will be allowed to sit as the leader of this party? Or is it, under the Societies Act, just a protected society and the government... Uh, I mean, this is a nonpartisan arm of the government, the elections commissioner. It's not like the new Democrats tell them what to do and they go off and do it. But is there a chance that the elections commissioner causes a big problem for Kenny? That's a really hard question to answer. I mean, on one hand, the elections commissioner can cause trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, um, in the the case uh, versus Rob Anders, years and years, well, it was versus the Conservative Party of Canada, years and years ago, um, when when uh, there was an attempt to to have a nomination battle against him, uh, basically the courts, you know, effectively ruled that as long as political parties follow their own arbitration procedure, they are private clubs and outside of the purview of the courts. Mm-hmm. So even if something came about and said, look, you know, this needs to be dealt with through through proper manners. One, it's probably past the time where somebody could actually go through the arbitration process within the party. But if the party has an arbitration process, the likely the likely situation, especially from a court perspective, is going to be the UCP is a private club, and so if if their contest went uh, awry, um, in the end, is it is it really the public's uh, view to be able to to change that or to to make a difference in that? Okay, so then at the end of the day, putting on your, your New Democrat hat for a second, you know, imagine that you're, a, you're a, a strategist for the New Democrats. The more time passes 
it seems like the the narrower that gap is getting uh, between the New Democrats and the UCP. Now, it's still a very sizable gap. Let's make no mistake about that. If an election were held today, an election is not being held today. But if it were held today, the UCP would just destroy all comers. But it's not as wide a margin as it was. The more people are getting to know and see Jason Kenney and some of these candidates from the UCP, the less popular they're getting. Now, there's a law on the books with no teeth that says the election needs to be held by the end of May, I think it is? Yes. But the actual, the law that takes precedence just says there needs to be an election by May of next year, 2020. Correct. Yeah, it's a five-year cycle according to... If you're the NDP, are you considering breaking that first law or, or in this, holding a quickie spring session and modifying that law so you're not actually breaking it, um, but to give voters more time to fall out of love with Jason Kenney the more this kind of stuff comes out? Well, I mean, we talked about it last podcast. Um, Jim Prentice, of course, went around the fix. Um, so, you know, and, and we can argue that did not work out well for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be hard to say that it is a direct correlation necessarily. I think it was involved, but I don't, I don't know that it was the reason that, that voters dumped the, the progressive conservatives. Um, but, but there is that warning there, right? Like from a, from a strategist perspective, you'd be, you'd be kind of going, look, like we break this. Um, this is you're you're giving the UCP the talking point, mm-hmm. right? So there's a danger there. But you're right. At the more time that is passing, um, the more the NDP seem to be to be rising. But we also have to remember, um, you know, a week in politics is practically a lifetime. Well, God, look at everything that's happened since we last recorded. Right. So so the thing is, I think from an NDP strategist perspective, I'd be asking, do we need more time? Right, and is it worth the risk? And and I would argue that um, for the NDP, their best bet is probably to go through ways and means to to really show a spectacular budget and poison pill it effectively. Um, well, I, I guess they don't have to poison pill; they're they're not a minority, but but effectively, you know, before it passes, um, go into the election. Right, mm-hmm. and then effectively create this, you know, this. This is the NDP vision versus the UCP vision. Mm-hmm. Um, that that would be kind of kind of what I would suggest would be the approach, simply because that gives them some time. They can then prepare a full budget. They can they basically get a massive campaign launch, mm-hmm. right? Like there's they get a throne speech. That's right. They have the option of bringing forward a budget, although now it's sounding like maybe they will, maybe they won't. Um, but I, you know, you gotta bring forward that budget so you have something to run on, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, it's the type of thing where, you know, the typical process when you, when you're doing budget is the government introduces the budget and then you go through this process where opposition parties have the ability to speak to it. And, and you go through kind of this 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 process to to flesh it out. Um, if you're the NDP, you you go through, you announce the budget, you make it look like we're still going to go through this budget process. Mm-hmm. So the UCP start to do that work and then drop, right? And then you go straight into it. And, and then you've basically launched your campaign on this massive budget on the public dime. 
But is there a disadvantage to that? I mean, there's definitely a disadvantage, in my opinion, to launching a campaign on the public dime. And I don't want to go there right now, but I, I've got a real problem with the way that's been going on with the, with the NDP government here in Alberta. But is there a disadvantage to, to launching your campaign that way? Because essentially when you release the budget, you are saying, this is everything we're going to do. So you've essentially released your entire platform all at once. And you can't then come out two weeks later and say, actually, we're going to do this. Because obviously the first response from any opposition member is going to be, well, then why wasn't that in the budget? Like you guys just had months and months to put that on paper. And now suddenly you're making it up as you go. Is that desperation? I don't think it's a disadvantage. I, it's, the thing is... When you do a budget, I mean, we're not talking about um, a small community association, $1 million budget, and, you know, 90% of that is going to salaries. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a massive infrastructure that has many components. And what tends to happen is things get talked about for a very long time afterwards, right? Because even, even when a budget is approved, over the year, that's when they kind of start to introduce those pieces and, and kind of flesh them out with more detail. Mm -hmm. There's no reason you can't do that from a campaign perspective. You release the entire budget. It is one big document, too much for most people to go through or to, to even process on a daily basis, like on a single day. Oh, are you kidding? Budget day is like Christmas for me. Oh, I just print off all 500 pages and I leave through it. I don't go to bed until I'm done. Well, the, well you're kind of strange, Joey. Um, Only kind of? Yeah. <laughs> so, but but from, from a public perspective... There's no reason the NDP couldn't, you know, with several several days in between, talk about and really explain parts of the budget. This is what we proposed in the budget, right. right? So I don't think it's a disadvantage from that perspective. Now, whether or not it's seen as a part, you know, this using the public dime and, and really trying to um, trying to make as much use of of public money as possible before going into being controlled with how much money they can spend we can we can be cynical about that right mm -hmm. uh, but I think from a, a pure strategic perspective mm -hmm. um, by the end of the campaign people won't be talking about the fact that it was the budget that went into it it's going to be talking about these things that have come out over however many weeks mm -hmm. and and what the UCP of course comes out with um, and whether or not they have anything that's that's closer to budget level where there's actual numbers and and policy around. Okay. Um, now, whether or not the New Democrats feel constrained by the fixed election period law, um, there are some real practical restrictions on when you can call an election in Alberta, right? Especially this year, right? Because you can't really call an election for summer because nobody pays po attention to politics in summer. Nobody wants to think about politics in summer. Nobody wants to vote in summer, right? You can't really hold an election in early fall because it's harvest season and you're going to tick off a lot of rural Albertans. And this year, you can't hold it later in the fall because we've got a federal election. That's assuming the federal election happens this fall. Right. I, that's another conversation to have, too. But there is at least a fixed election date for the federal election unless something crazy happens like the government falls, which is always a possibility in the Westminster system. Absolutely. And, and you know, we'll, we'll discuss that later. Um, so yeah, the question would really be if, if, they're, if they delay it, um, 
do they delay it until next year? And does that give them too narrow of a window and too much ability for the opposition to target message? Right, because they know the same thing that we're just talking about, right? They know they know that these narrow windows exist. So unless you're going to go to election by June, you effectively have to start talking about December, right? And then that becomes a question of of door knocking and and all of that as well, right? Okay, Kirk. So as we close out this episode three of the Unelectables, I have a very important question to ask you. Of course, as always. Online voting, a great idea or the greatest idea? Well, I can tell you it's the greatest idea if you have people's pins and a VPN connection. All right, until next time, I have been the enlightened savage, Joey Oberhoffner. And I'm Kirk Schmidt. And we are the, the Unelectables. Unelectable to